This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When adolescents die, 29% of the time, a gun is involved, making it a child health issue for pediatrician Eric Siegel. He has a new study of youth and guns. It's based on more than 1,700 interviews with young people and families in two Denver neighborhoods. Dr. Siegel teaches at the CU School of Medicine and focuses on adolescents at Children's Hospital Colorado. He got federal money for this research. And doctor, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you very much, Ryan. Nice to be here. You are particularly interested in whether young people have access to firearms and if that is linked to them wanting to hurt themselves or others. What most surprised you from these many interviews? Uh, well, I, I think what was most surprising is the uh, kids um, disclosing or, or discussing the fact that they, in fact, did have access to firearms. And particularly um, what we found is, is um, many of their friends, or they reported that many of their friends had firearms, something that we don't particularly consider um, when we're talking to parents or kids about the risk of potential access. That is to say, you might look at whether there is a firearm in the home and whether it's properly stored, but it might not be intuitive for parents to think about other homes in their kids' lives. Correct. And, and we know actually with, um, with younger kids, um, especially um, boys 11 to 14, um, that represents a significant risk when they're playing at uh, their friend's house. Um, there are unintentional injuries that may happen related to guns. And we don't typically talk to um, our, our kids' friends' parents about whether there might be access in those homes where they're playing. Okay, so that's a key takeaway from these interviews, which were in two Denver neighborhoods, Montbello and Park Hill. I'll ask you in a little bit why you focused there, but um, what were some of the uh, further findings in terms of access? Did you find that some kids were more likely than others to know where a gun was? Sure. So, so one of the main points of the study to, was to look at what um, risk factors may be involved, what may put uh, a youth at particular risk, especially something that we as healthcare providers can assess. And um, we did detect that the fact that um, youth um, who had um, either um, a variety of mental health issues or um, displaying violence tendencies or other adolescent risk behaviors um, reported having increased access um, to guns. Um, So that's particularly concerning, of course, if you're talking about a youth that may be dealing with depression, ADHD, something else um, that can generally put them more at risk. But then if you add that layer of them having um, access to guns, then obviously that can lead to a lethal situation. So overall, you found very few of the youth uh, had ownership of a gun or direct access, about 2%. But you said about 7% told you they found that it would be easy to get a gun if they wanted one. And then those numbers go up, as you say, if there are these commensurate risk factors. Um, Help us understand the, the context here. So, um, so we, we asked several questions. Um, we asked youth whether they felt like it would be easy to get a gun, um, whether they knew where to get a gun. And, and as you mentioned, about 6% of kids said 
would be easy to get a gun. 10% said they knew where to get a gun. Um, and 15% said they had friends with guns. And we created this variable called potential access, which was essentially 20% of our, of our youth say um, they had that potential access. Um, you referred to the possessing a firearm and, and and only 2% of kids um, stated that they, in fact, possessed a firearm. But one of the other um, findings that um, we've, we discovered was that certainly kids who lived in homes with um, guns, parents that reported having guns, then um, that usually doubled or tripled their um, risk or rate of having um, actually possessed a firearm. You say that those who had attempted suicide were more than twice as likely to have a friend with a handgun, uh, 38%, than youth who had not attempted suicide, about 16%. Correct. Yeah, we we find, again, this is sort of related to um, uh, youth risk behavior um, that tends to cluster. So um, those youth that had either depression or um, endorsed having had a prior suicide attempt um, reported having that increased um, access to firearms, more than double, as you said, with those statistics. One statistic that I understand helped prompt this study really stands out that adolescents who attempt suicide often make that decision and act on it within an hour. Um, will you tell us more about that? Right. So that's that's not my research. That's that's research that's been done across yeah. the country in several different studies that show basically um, a, a youth who attempts suicide makes that well, makes that decision. About twenty five percent of youth make that decision within an hour. Another. 50% make that decision within a few hours. So it's very impulsive. Suicide is a very impulsive act for kids. Um, what oftentimes sets them off will be a relationship breakup or a major family event, um, something that it's, it can be very hard to anticipate. Um, so that's when we get into thinking about you know, when this risk may exist for kids and um, and, and that combination of, of access um, really leads to this this uh, lethality. So so it's really imperative, and you know, getting to one of the central messages is to really ensure that kids absolutely do not have access to guns, really at any time, um, but particularly um, in those youth that may have um, issues, mental health issues, or maybe def- we also looked at different violence um, risk factors and violence tendencies. So any time a kid's dis- displaying some concern. Um, Needs we need to really make sure that they don't have access to firearms. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Dr. Eric Siegel. He's a pediatrician who specializes in adolescent medicine at uh, the CU School of Medicine and at Children's Hospital Colorado. And um, the the skeptic in me says, "My goodness, young people might have a tendency to brag about their access to firearms." Uh, with the idea, perhaps, of looking cool. Um, Isn't it possible that they told you they have access to firearms far more than they actually do? I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, The the optimist in me in working with teenagers, particularly when when we do these types of surveys, is we find that the kids are, by and large, um, honest um, and and straightforward. And the setting that, uh, that a survey like this is, 
done in is is a uh, is confidential. So um, they they're assured that their answers aren't going to go to their parents or aren't going to be you know released to the police or anything like that. So so by and large, we have. Um, confidence that that kids are telling the truth. Um, I think the the additional thing is that we found actually fairly remarkable that only two percent of kids did endorse having actually carried a firearm, having possessed a firearm. Um, so when you you sort of merge those two statistics together. Um, you know, one may not be, if you're thinking that kids may be bragging about stuff, right, right, right. they would also brag about, oh, I had a gun, I had a gun. Uh, but, but they didn't. What led you to study these two Denver area neighborhoods, Montbello and Park Hill? So um, this is part of a greater study and collaboration that um, I work with my partners up at the Center for this Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence, um, UC Boulder, and we had a collaborative, have a collaborative agreement with um, the Centers for Disease Control. And these two neighborhoods were picked um, to focus on a larger effort, a youth violence prevention effort, um, where we were implementing uh, basically a community activation, something the official term is called the Communities That Care model, to help prevent youth violence. And so we were doing this extensive survey um, in the these two neighborhoods, and we've put in these questions about firearms and mental health issues um, to help further elucidate some of the issues that may be going on. Uh, these are neighborhoods with a history of gang activity, correct? Um, well, m- most neighborhoods in, De- in Denver um, have had some gang activity. Uh-huh. Um, that's not the reason these neighborhoods were chosen. These neighborhoods were chosen um, because they were in the in the upper third of general youth violence um, in the city. So, um, sort of deserved, uh, if you will, extra attention, extra focus to help address that problem. So, we started with with many communities um, that were um, displaying similar violence tendencies and sort of randomized and picked a, a couple of different communities that would work for this and that were willing to participate. So, Dr. Siegel, back to the question of youth access to guns. Do you ask parents about this when they are in uh, your office? Um, yeah, we, we're, well, we're certainly making a push to do this, and both the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, and our Adolescent Medicine Society suggests that healthcare providers screen for firearm access and have a discussion um, with families um, about safe storage. Um, we do know, and, and I know this falls on some, this can be a politically a controversial perhaps, but the safest home for a kid is in fact with, uh, is a home without a firearm. So, so that's sort of the first message, but, but the reality is, and I recognize as a practitioner, um, that we're not going to get parents to get rid of firearms, whether they have them for protection or for hunting. But what we do realize is that they can make those guns absolutely inaccessible um, from their kids, which is that next safest situation. And as you said, to check in on other households that that child might visit. Indeed, I imagine there are listeners who are saying, well, I have a firearm in my house and perhaps I've even taught my child uh, the proper use and storage of a gun and that that's something, you know, important to me to impart to a child. 
Right. Well, absolutely, that's important. Um, if if a youth is living in a home with a firearm, for for that youth um, to recognize how to safely use one, if if in fact that's for hunting or for target shooting. Um, but the 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 critical thing there is that um, that comfort level or even that knowledge about safety um, doesn't preclude a youth from using that in a suicide attempt. Um, If they're familiar with a gun, we don't know if it increases their chance of using a gun. We do know that um, kids, if they use a gun for a suicide attempt, um, they use 85% of the time they use a gun from their home. So that's a a pretty dramatic statistic. And we also know that um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for adolescents and homicide is the third leading cause of death. So that's that's one of the reasons we really focus on on this area to try to prevent both um, mortality, kids from dying from firearms, as well as the morbidities, the injuries that kids have. And um, nationally, I think the number is about 4,300 youth die per year from firearms and about 35,000 um, suffer non-fatal injuries from firearms. Right. And, and this is a question both of turning the gun on themselves or others, the question of violence. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. Sure. I appreciate it. Dr. Eric Siegel is a pediatrician who specializes in adolescent patients at the CU School of Medicine and at Children's Hospital Colorado. He presented his findings on youth and gun access to the American Academy of Pediatrics. We'll be right back with a young Muslim woman in Denver who breaks through stereotypes with her YouTube channel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tazzy Fay has more than 50,000 YouTube subscribers. They come to her videos for a funny, insightful commentary about her Muslim faith and Pakistani roots. Hi, Siri. Hi there. Do you mind if we ask you a few questions? Who, me? Yes, you, silly. I'm sorry. Okay. So, do you know any Muslims? I can't answer that. Why not? I can't say. Do you like Muslims? I eschew theological disposition. What? Do you like Islam? Humans have religion. I just have silicon. I didn't ask you about your plastic surgery. <laughs> Tazi Fay is the YouTube personality of Thasmina Freedy, who lives near Denver. When she's not making videos for her channel, she's working as a corporate recruiter. And recently, this 25-year-old was named a YouTube Creators for Change fellow. And uh, Thasneem, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What led you to launch your YouTube channel in the first place? Um, it it kind of came out of boredom and <laughs> seeing other people do it as well. So I just saw that, you know, in its early stages, I saw other people making videos and I thought, hey, this is not that hard. I'll do it. And did you want to bring a message or did you just want to try out the medium? Yeah, I never I never had an intention, you know, to spread a message or anything. I, I really just was just playing around with video editing and making videos. But a message developed, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I definitely I definitely um, see that. And I see that more as, um, you know, things like the fellow, the Creators for Change Fellowship came. So I, I think it's 
kind of hitting me now that there is a message. What is that going to allow you to do, that fellowship? So um, they are going to give us workshops. So we're going to attend some workshops in the summer, um, and they're going to show us how to produce and um, kind of help us brainstorm ideas as well and facilitate those. So, um, And then they're also giving us a grant. So we're going to be, you know, be able to use that towards making some more videos. So is this still a pretty low-tech affair, like in your bedroom or something? Yeah, it's 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 uh it's really low tech. It's just a tripod, my camera just sitting in a corner of my room. Uh-huh. And what about the lighting? Have you played with that a lot? Yeah, I actually bought some really big lights that were kind of expensive, but I I noticed that daylight actually is the best um option. Look at that low tech. Well, you and your family moved from Pakistan to Colorado when you were 2, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and your videos focus predominantly on your heritage, your religion. Here's one from last month titled American Guide to Pakistan. Our cuisine is not hummus. It is a variety of things, including kebabs, lentils, biryani, and various curries. Although nobody in Pakistan calls a curry curry. It is referred to as shorba, shorba, or salan. Also, naan is a type of bread. So when you say naan bread, it's redundant. Yeah. Like chai tea. Chai means tea. So you're basically saying tea tea. Why would anyone say tea tea? <laughs> naan bread and chai tea. Uh, you're very funny and your timing you. is really good. Thanks. thanks. Yeah. Um, does that require a lot of editing to get the timing right? Or do you have good timing in real life? Um, I think it's definitely editing. (laughs) So I have a script and then I uh, practice and I edit. And um, sometimes it does come, come, you know, on time without editing it. But most of the time it's editing. Most of the time it's editing. How how does humor, do you think, just cut through stereotypes? Why do you use that device as opposed to, you know, getting kind of luxury or something? I think humor is just a really great tool. Um, It it, it makes people lighten up. um, And so it makes these topics that are really, really difficult to talk about and, you know, get people really heated. It kind of opens them up and relaxes people and makes it easier to talk about and tackle these issues. Now, you also have videos about social awkwardness and climbing a 14er, so it's it's not all about faith. Where do you get ideas? I get ideas from everywhere. I, I get things just, you know, in my everyday life, just little quirks. Um, and then sometimes those are related to me being Muslim and um, being Pakistani. So, Give me an example that resulted in a video just, I don't know, maybe in the last few months? Well, I have one that I'm working on right now. And I I actually stumbled upon um, ASMR. Um, it's it's like this uh, little niche. Um, well, it's not little. There's a lot of people who watch it. And it's, it's all about these sounds and people really enjoy listening to them. And so it inspired me to make a video. And so I'm actually working on that right now. This is Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Yeah, it's it's kind of like people like whispering in your ear and people like that or the sounds of like cutting stuff or squishing things. It's it's very weird. <laughs> and, and people sort of are comforted by that. Yes. Well, that sounds like a great fodder for, I don't know, from some discussion. What are you going to say about it, do you think? Oh, I just just how, you know, my impression of how I stumbled upon it and what it is. And um, I even have like a little bit of me attempting to do it. So, um, it you know, it ranges. It ranges from me running into things like that or, you know, sometimes I'm I, I have something difficult in my life. And sometimes um, I make videos about that. 
This is fa- I'm fascinated by this world you've just introduced me to. Soft-spoken <laughs> personal attention. So like just people whispering at you, which can, can yeah. be so nice. <laughs> you, you've made videos that have focused on hijab. Um, and then last October, you released this video. I made these videos because I struggled with talking to strangers about the subject in my real life. I made these videos because I would feel defensive after I read a comment or after someone would call me out for something in my real life. I made these videos because there were times where I felt like I was discriminated against and I wanted to talk about it. But this is the last video that I'm going to dedicate to the subject on this channel. Why did you stop talking about hijab? I felt like I was putting myself in a box and I feel like there's so much more to me as a person and there's there's also a lot more to being Muslim than just my scarf, but that's what people see and so that's what they're curious about and then people put a lot of emphasis and, um, you know, hold that to be, I guess, like a, a symbol and I, I think it's hard for people to get past it. So I, I kind of wanted to venture and, and just make sure that, you know, that's not the topic of my video um, because then I, I, I do feel like I'm putting myself in a box. Mm. And that there are maybe more important issues to grapple with that have to do with your faith. Yeah. Than that symbol. Yeah. And, and there's definitely more to the experience of being Muslim than just um, wearing a scarf. And I want people to look past it. I read that Lucille Ball is a big influence on your comedy. Yes. I, I can see that, um, particularly in your use of facial expressions. I think your timing. What about her comedy appeals to you? First of all, that's a big compliment, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think what I really love about um, her comedy, especially her show, is that it is, it's kind of like evergreen. So it's, it's been something that, you know, I, I was, I, I, when I was in high school, I used to go not rent, but check out all the DVDs and all the seasons. And I just watch them over winter break. So I love Lucy. Yeah. And, and it's such a, it's, you know, it's, it's an old show, but for someone like me to still love it so much, I think it speaks volumes to, um, how timeless her comedy was and, you know, all of that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with YouTube personality from the Denver area, Tazzy Faye. Uh, in real life, she is thus mean Afridi. And uh, she has just won a YouTube Creators for Change fellow, in part because of some of the messages she imparts on her YouTube channel. And if, if I may make an observation, you are um, much more kind of like subdued and even keeled in real life than the Tazzy Faye character on the YouTube videos. Is she? Do you think she's a character? Um, it, It's weird because I actually... I, she isn't a character. She's a part of me that only people who are really close to me get to see because I'm really shy in real life and I don't I'm not really outspoken or anything. And you, you were a little nervous coming in today, which I, I think is just so sweet. Yeah, I'm well, I'm I am a little bit socially awkward and I am <laughs> nervous because, um, you know, it's different when you record videos in your room because it's just you and it, it doesn't register to me that, oh, there's all these people watching it because it's just it's just a screen like, you know, it's just the Internet. <laughs> Do you hope to parlay this into full-time work or does being a corporate recruiter uh, capture your attention? I think right now, you know, working in the corporate world takes up most of my time, but I would love for this to be a full-time thing. How, how so? Just be on the internet? I mean, could you see this on television or podcast or what? 
Yeah, I, w- I would love to venture into doing a podcast. I would love to make this channel grow because it's still it's still fairly, um, you know, small compared to other channels. So I, I definitely want to make the channel grow and explore the digital space more. In terms of exploration, I know that you're interested in documentary work as well. What what other themes, what other topics would you like to broach? I think um, xenophobia, I mean, I touch on it a little bit in, in my videos, but I think the immigrant experience is something that is really interesting to me. Um, the subculture that has come out of, um, you know, my generation, you know, people who are children of immigrants or came here when they were very young. There's kind of this subculture, and I'd like to explore that more. What does that subculture, the Pakistani subculture, look like in Metro Denver, would you say? Um, I would say in Denver, it's kind of scattered. But, you know, it's like we all know each other. We all have these weird um, quirks that we can relate to because, you know, we we understand this weird place that we're navigating um, as Americans and Pakistanis at the same time. You talked about xenophobia. Have you been the subject of it? Um, I would, it, it's kind of confusing because I wear a headscarf. So it's kind of hard to know sometimes whether, I, I think I have been, um, but it's hard to know, you know, the difference between Islamophobia, xenophobia. Sometimes it's just mixed in one. So, um, when I feel like I have been discriminated against, I, I'm not really sure. Why? Why? <laughs> which of the, which, which, which of the one? parts of me led, led you to treat me this way? When, yeah. when have you felt it? Um, you know, I've had a few instances when I was in college. Um, I had, I've, I have weird things happen to me from time to time. Um, I think earlier this year, like someone rolled down their window and spit. <laughs> like I don't, I, I don't know. I've had strange things happen. So, like spit at you? Did they get? Did they hit you? No, they were like looking at me and then spit, like trying to give me a message. <laughs> yeah. uh, people can get so nasty online. And I know that under YouTube videos, it can just, you know, deteriorate quickly. How do you deal with those strings of comments? I think um, sometimes it does impact me and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it it doesn't, it just rolls right off me because I don't really care. And then sometimes it really does hit me. What hits you? Um, it makes me feel like, just for a second, like, what is the point if... Um, you know, people can't see past my identity or people hate me so much just for um, being Muslim or being Pakistani. What does your family think of your rather forward-facing gig on YouTube? Um, I think, you know, whenever someone does something that's kind of new and out of the box, um, you it takes some time for them to um, come around to it. And I think my, my, my family is definitely coming around to it now. Okay, but it's taking some time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, you know, everybody wants the traditional um, ideas of success, corporate job, high paying job. And that's that's kind of how we value um, success. And of course, they just want me to be successful. So, well, uh, I would say that Lucille Ball did rather well. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Even in the corporate world as owner of a studio. You're right. That's name. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. That's name Afridi of Denver was recently named a YouTube Creators for Change fellow. You can see some of her videos at cprnews.org, where we have also linked to her YouTube channel. (music) 
When Charles Lindbergh climbed into the spirit of St. Louis and set out for Paris in 1927, he might as well have been headed for the moon. Attempts to cross the Atlantic nonstop in an airplane had already taken many lives. The 90th anniversary of Lindbergh's flight is Saturday. In a new book, The Flight, retired Air Force pilot Dan Hampton of Colorado Springs takes us inside the cockpit on that historic journey. Hampton speaks with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. When Charles Lindbergh flew nonstop from New York to Paris in 1927, he became an international hero. But he's often remembered for controversies that came later on. He's known as a Nazi sympathizer and an anti-Semite. You've consciously focused on just this flight. Why? Well, you know, we can we can talk about the other things if you like. A lot of it was actually myth, I discovered in, in my uh, extensive research for this. I focused on the flight because that's what made him famous and that's what startled the word, world and made him a celebrity. And uh, take us back to 1927. What made this kind of flight so challenging at the time? What made it challenging was no one had ever done it. I mean, we air, air travel is so commonplace these days, right? We can hop on a plane and go anywhere. That was not the case in 1927. The impact was roughly similar to, say, the moon, the space program, and the moon landings in the you know in the 60s. And others had tried this before and hadn't made it. In fact, you write about two Frenchmen who attempted the flight just weeks earlier. That's right. Uh, Charles Dungasser and and, uh, and Coley, uh, they were both French aviators from the Great War, very experienced guys. And the last they were seen was over the Irish coast heading west, and nobody saw him again. Mm. And Lindbergh was chasing a prize, $25,000 offered by a New York hotel owner that had gone unclaimed for eight years. Uh, Lindbergh tried to learn from other people's mistakes. He had his plane, which was called the Spirit of St. Louis, custom-made for the flight. What made this particular design work? Well, he purposely went small and streamlined. Everybody else that had tried had these big multi-engine planes with crews, and he wanted to go simple, and he wanted to go alone, which having been a single-seat fighter pilot, I can appreciate. And is it true he couldn't see out the front window? Um, yeah, it was gone. He had a he had a fuel tank uh, put in, in forward of, uh, of his instrument panel. And, you know, to be honest, you don't really need to see out of the front uh, except to take off. Uh, to land, you know, the angle of attack of the airplane is such that you look out of the side anyway. And he figured over the ocean there was nothing to see but ocean anyhow. So why bother? He needed the gas. Right. And he took off from Long Island, New York, on the morning of May 20th, 1927, headed northeast up the U.S. coastline. Describe his route and why he chose that particular route. Well, it's the same now in navigation. It's called great circle navigation. And if you think of a basketball or a sphere, you know, it's wider in the middle than it is at the top. So the shortest distance is actually the further towards the top you go. It was controversial for him to fly over Nova Scotia and Newfoundland because he's well north of the shipping lanes. It's very cold. There's ice. If he did go down, there'd be nobody to see him. But he was so confident he had no you know, plan of going down. He was going to make it. And this was the shortest way to do it. And in your book, uh, you describe people early on coming out of their houses to wave at him. Um, did they know who and, and what it was? I think most of them did, and as certainly at the larger points along his route. He had no clue, though, that he was being followed. In fact, when he got to the coast of France and realized he was going to make it, he started to worry about things like not having a visa in his passport. You know, <laughs> Would there even be anybody at the airport to meet him there? 
Had he not planned on making it? Or? Well, no, he just he just forgot to get a visa, and then he wondered <laughs> if if I do land, will they even let me off the the airfield? I mean, he was a very he'd planned the flight, but he just didn't have any concept of the reception that he was going to receive. And uh, he leaves North America and the North American coastline and faces. 3,600 miles of Atlantic Ocean, and he'd never flown over open water before. How did he navigate at a time when navigation was so much more rudimentary than it is today? Well, it's called dead reckoning, and he plotted a course, you know, based on how you do that. I won't go into it. But then he had to correct for the winds in flight. And fortunately, he had Nova Scotia and then another spot of of water and then Newfoundland to update his position. He had to leave St. John's on course, on heading, and then based on the time, he figured, all right, this is where I'll show up in Ireland. What he didn't count on was running into a thousand-mile storm at night over the North Atlantic. And when he emerged from that and the sun came up, he really had no idea where he was. Was that the most dangerous part of his journey? It was all extremely dangerous. I mean, I've flown the same route, but fortunately, I was in a jet fighter. I can't imagine flying at 100 miles an hour in a little cotton-covered airplane like he did. His biggest challenge, I think, personally, was staying awake. Right. And he had to keep his hand on the controls the whole time. Yeah. Um, you're a pilot, uh, as you've mentioned. What kind of discipline does that require? Well, discipline and necessity. He he purposely, when he helped design the plane, wanted to make it difficult to fly. And I've been in a couple of the flyable replicas uh, in Wisconsin and other places, and I can attest to the fact it's not an easy plane to fly. He figured that would help keep him awake. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking about Charles Lindbergh's daring transatlantic crossing in 1927. The 90th anniversary of that flight is tomorrow. With us is retired Air Force pilot Dan Hampton of Colorado Springs, whose book, The Flight, traces that journey. And Dan, you describe this flight as an experience that's almost romantic. Sometimes Lindbergh was so low he could see the waves of the Atlantic. Paint a picture for us of, of what it was like. Well, even lower than that. I mean, he emerged from the clouds, you know, and he, and he wanted a reference. So he wanted to go down and he wanted to see the water. And I, I know how he feels. What he didn't count on were the waves from that storm. Some of them were 50 feet, you know, high. And he actually got to within five or 10 feet of the waves. Wow. The spray was blowing into the cockpit. And he realized, rightfully so, that this probably wasn't a good idea. So he climbed back up away from it a little bit. And you've piloted one of the most sophisticated pieces of technology in the world, an F-16. How much nostalgia do you feel for flying this old-fashioned way? Well, you know, I used – I've thought about him a couple times way back when when I was, when I was doing this uh, and had nothing but admiration for the, for the courage and, pilot, you know, aviation piloting skill that he had to make it. And do you imagine he was – a bit afraid, say terrified at this experience? Um, I don't think he was ever terrified. I think he he had planned it. He was very confident in his own ability. You don't fly single-seat airplanes of any kind without being confident. And that's good. I think there were some things that caught him by surprise, but that's what pilots do. They adapt to things that change, and then they overcome it. He didn't pack a parachute. Uh, did he have a backup plan in case things went wrong? Well, yeah, he didn't pack a parachute because there's really no way to get out of that plane, you know, to use it. He's going to go down with the plane. Uh, he, when he ran across the ice flows for the first time, he did have a few conversations with himself about how he'd land on the ice. He had a rubber raft in case he went down in the water, but he was way above the shipping lanes, so nobody probably would have found him. And, of course, he had no radio. Hmm. 
When he landed in Paris, a crowd of more than 100,000 people met him there. There was a ticker tape parade in New York. What is What did his accomplishment mean to people at the time? Yeah, 100,000 screaming Frenchmen. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it meant... It meant again to go back to the space program. What it did when we, you know, when we landed on the moon, it wasn't. It transcended borders and nations, and it was more of I don't want to sound prosaic, but a, a family of man accomplishment. This was man against the elements, man against nature, and he proved that it could be done. And um, as a pilot yourself, what do you most admire about the man Charles Lindbergh? His stamina. I mean, the longest I was ever in a cockpit flying alone was 15 hours, and it and it was miserable, utterly miserable. Uh, flying at 100 miles an hour, you know, in that little thing. His cockpit was about the same size mine was and had about the same amount of creature comforts, but he did it twice as long. And he had no idea where he was, you know, and what was going to happen, and that uncertainty can really weigh on a pilot. I admire his stamina. I'm just picturing him one hand on the controls trying to eat um – yeah, you know, he packed five sandwiches uh, right before he left, and he only ate one of them, and it wasn't until he got to France. I think he was too occupied and too, uh, let's just say, uncertain about his future to really be too hungry. And he basically forgot about it till he got to France. Wow. I want to circle back to the controversies around Charles Lindbergh. Uh, he did make anti-Semitic statements and expressed admiration for the Nazis. And you've lectured about Lindbergh at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. How do you think this aspect of his life should be taught in well, a fair way? To be fair, and any historian worth their salt will tell you, you cannot judge the past through our own modern perceptions. And I'm not condoning some of the things that he said, but I think a lot of what he said was taken out of context. And he wasn't the best speaker. He didn't get his point across very well. I will tell you this, that he caught a lot of flack for going to Nazi Germany and accepting an invitation to tour their factories. And most people don't know that when this invitation came up, he approached U.S. military intelligence and said, do you want me to go? And they said, absolutely. Go find everything out you can and then tell us. And that's what he did. So when the controversy over that trip arose, he couldn't very well say, no, no, I was really on a secret mission because it was a secret mission. So he basically didn't say anything and swallowed it and took the heat. But certainly there were critics at the time who were not happy with what he did. There were. And the America First movement, you know, has overtures to our own our own time. But he was not alone in this. Some 60 to 70 percent of Americans did not want us into World War II. They saw it as a European war. We'd already bled in World War I. Lindbergh supported all that along with Walt Disney, Gerald Ford, John F. Kennedy Jr. and a whole bunch of others until we were attacked. And then he was one of the first to jump up and say, it's my country. I love it. I'm going to go fight for it. What did Lindbergh mean to the future of aviation? Just about everything that we enjoy today, he proved that continents could be linked by aircraft. Before then, it was only boats. Now, the Atlantic had been crossed in segments before uh, by airplanes and by airships, but he was the first one to do it nonstop from New York to Paris. And he did it alone, okay, an added benefit, an added kind of spear, you know, towards people that said it couldn't be done. It could be done. And the burgeoning commercial air uh, travel industry then grew from that, and, and we started to become linked as we are today. Dan, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Dan Hampton of Colorado Springs flew 151 combat missions as an F-16 pilot in the Air Force. His new book about Charles Lindbergh is The Flight. 
Saturday is the 90th anniversary of Lindbergh's historic non-stop flight from New York to Paris. Hampton will be at the Tattered Cover at Aspen Grove tonight and at the Barnes & Noble in Colorado Springs tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You may think the library is just a place to check out a book, but libraries are providing more services these days. In fact, the Denver Public Library says it's playing an entirely different role. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the library. It's 10 a.m., and dozens of people wait outside Denver Central Library in downtown. They're welcomed in by a security guard. It's a mix of people. Some hold books and DVDs to return... Others want shelter and have signs asking for spare change. James Short is among them. He describes himself this way. Currently residentially challenged, yes. He's homeless and a writer and says he comes to the library nearly every day to do his work. Without its resources? I'd be drinking a lot more Starbucks coffee and using their internet. (laughs) Which gets expensive. Short was the only person who was willing to talk with me. One man said he was too high to go on record. Another didn't want the plasma center to know he was homeless or he wouldn't be able to donate. We are really the one of the only public bathrooms people can use in the city. That's Alyssa Hardy. She works at the Denver Public Library, but she doesn't shelve books. She's a social worker. And we don't open until 10. So as you can imagine, if you're leaving shelter at 5 or 6 in the morning, that's 5 to 6 hours that you don't have access to the bathroom. Hardy became the Denver Public Library's first social worker two years ago. She says that before, the Denver Library was doing the best it could. And I think that's certainly what libraries are doing across the country. And when I started, this was the third city to get a social worker in the library. And now there are dozens around the country. Hardy admits she never saw herself working here. I knew the library in regards to this is where I would come get my books. Other than that? No, no experience working in a library before. Just really, you know, experience was as a customer. But here Hardy is, giving me a tour of the Denver Central Library. And it's big, with seven floors of magazines, newspapers, and, of course, books. It's here because in the 90s, Denver voters approved a $91.6 million ballot measure. That money went towards creating the new Central Library and branch locations. Today, Hardy says this building serves as a homeless shelter. We are the the largest day shelter, basically, in Denver. The reason people often come here, though, even though there are some other day shelter spaces, is because there are things to do and there's resources. You can be another human in the community. Hardy says most of the people who wait outside in the morning head straight to the computers on the fourth floor. That's where some of them, like Short, do their work. You're not allowed to sleep at the library, but a few people are nodded off at their tables their belongings tucked under their seats. But remember, this isn't a homeless shelter. And Michelle Jeske, the city librarian for Denver, says she wouldn't call it one. That is a role that we have um, not asked to play, but are playing. Jeske says the two social workers are necessary to better serve the homeless population. Part of the intent of that was to help our staff. Um, Those of us who went to grad school to be librarians didn't uh, go to grad school to be social workers and were, in fact, kind of bridging that role a little bit um, in ways that were not necessarily comfortable for us. Jeske says the specialized help from the social workers has been a good move for the library. 
But it's tough to find a balance between being a library for everyone and helping the homeless. Jeske says they don't want priorities like children's learning to suffer. She sees Hardy's position as a way to find that balance. But Hardy says when she first started at the library, she got pushback from staff. This isn't a social service setting. Are we going to be inviting more people here? But Hardy says now she's seen as a resource. Mary Stansbury directs the Library and Information Science program at the University of Denver. She says Hardy's role is a natural fit for a library. Public libraries have for decades been essential organizations, not just for homeless people, but also as a conduit for connecting the agencies in whatever community that library might be in that serve the homeless. She says libraries provide a safe place. There are security guards, places to sit you won't be asked to leave, and you're off the streets. Stansbury admits universities could better prepare librarians for an environment with the homeless. And Hardy gets it. People don't go into the field of library science thinking they're going to be working in a homeless shelter. Hardy says in the summer, many people without a home travel through Denver. And often, the first place they go is the library. It could be to find a book. But she says some ask, where are the food lines? And the shelters? The library, Hardy says, is here to connect those people to what they need. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Now, earlier this month, Michael reported on the library's decision to have a medicine on hand that treats overdoses. And you can hear and read that story at CPRnews.org. Next week on Colorado Matters, Breaking Bread. We made soup and sourdough and sat down with Coloradans who are divided politically. Would they be at each other's throats? Could they find common ground? The results were quite moving, and you can hear them again next week on Colorado Matters. Finally today, singer-songwriter Sarah Cahoon has been writing alt-country folk for more than a decade. The Littleton native and Columbine High School graduate now calls the Pacific Northwest home. But she recently returned to Colorado on tour with her latest album, From Where I Started. Members of Death Cab for Cutie, Iron and Wine, and Sun Volt contributed to the project— Here Cahoon is with Up To Me in our performance studio. I want to be your garden, let's plant some flowers. We'll scatter seeds out in the morning time. I want to be your honey and make you honey. The soothing tones of Littleton native Sarah Cahoon. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. From Colorado Public Radio, thanks for spending time with us. But it's not really up to me.